War. War never changes. In the year 1945, my great-great-grandfather, serving in the army, wondered when he'd get to go home to his wife and the son he'd never seen. He got his wish when the U.S. ended World War II by dropping atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The world awaited Armageddon. Instead, something miraculous happened. We began to use atomic energy not as a weapon, but as a nearly limitless source of power. People enjoyed luxuries once thought the realm of science fiction. Domestic robots, fusion-powered cars, portable computers. But then, in the 21st century, people awoke from the American dream. Years of consumption led to shortages of every major resource. The entire world unraveled. Peace became a distant memory. It is now the year 2077. We stand on the brink of total war. And I am afraid. For myself. For my wife. For my infant son. Because if my time in the army taught me one thing. It's that war. War never changes. is Control Structure, episode 96, for November, whenever I get around to posting this, 2015. Big week to everyone listening. This show has notes. Visit thenexus.tv slash cs96 to see them. I am Andrew Bailey, the Vault Dweller, and joining me this, t- this time episode something is Stephen Orvis. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Steve. I've, uh, seen, I've been seeing you around a lot recently. Uh, you have every two weeks recently. Yeah, so it's uh, nice that you uh, come around these parts. It, it, it is more fun doing the podcast in person and uh, and uh, getting to talk to you and uh, watching the different videos and such that we do in the between running times. <laughs> yeah, that that really helps there. So uh, let's see, work might be getting a little busy since uh, you know. My bosses are telling me that overtime is coming, which is kind of strange because, like, overtime is just very sudden, usually. Like, you don't usually have an advanced warning for it. It's like, oh, by the way, we need you to work this weekend and probably 24 hours for the next five days. <laughs> because a client's down and you gotta fix it. <laughs> yeah, that nothing like that has ever happened, but, I mean, it's only once that I was called up on, like, Black Friday to, like put an option in a drop-down somewhere, 
and like maybe occasionally if like something goes horribly wrong on a Saturday or something. But yeah, occasional isn't too bad. That's how it's actually been for me. Most of the time it's just every now and then, but when they need you, they need you. Yes. So uh, in the meantime, uh, this would be last week that uh, Twitch had a marathon of Bob Ross and... Like, if you didn't remember him, Bob Ross was the uh, painter on PBS, like, 20 years ago. Um, so Twitch had a channel that's, like, just, that was dedicated to, you know, just, like, continual back-to-back marathon episodes of the entire, like, painting show series. Um, because they're trying to, uh, break into, like, more creative, uh, like endeavors, so like anything like such as painting or drawing or sculpting or like some other artistic endeavor, you know. So I'm not sure if they're like trying to break into more what YouTube does, mm-hmm. uh, rather than just like their mainstay of just gaming. So, and, so I wonder if like licensing wise, though, if they still had to buy the license to show that must be. I'm not sure, but being PBS, it was probably kind of easy to. That's true. So, um, and, you know, obviously I watched, you know, quite a bit of it whenever I was like, hey, I got some free time. Uh, so apparently they will, Twitch will be showing a season every Monday night, along with marathons of the entire run starting every October 29th, which is apparently his birthday. So they're just going to play everything without stopping. (laughs) Well, I mean, over and over and over again. (laughs) And, uh, it, you know, just, you know, watching him, he, he has a few hacks of how he does things. Like, uh, like probably my most favorite hack of his was, like, whenever he wants to, like, draw in some twigs or, like, little branches or something. He'll take, like, some, I think it was, like, a knife or something and just scrape the canvas. And, you know, like, people, and then he'd say, people will think you worked weeks to put that in there. Ha ha ha! Ha ha! That's funny. So, and then, uh, you know, of course, you know, he does the happy little mountains and the happy little trees and, you know, the happy little bushes and stuff everywhere. So, uh, it, you know, it's just kind of zen watching him do that. And, uh, like, I looked into, you know, just, like, pulled him up on Wikipedia. And apparently, uh, for 20 years, he was in the Air Force stationed in Alaska. So he was like the drill sergeant who yelled at you to get up every morning and to clean the toilet with a toothbrush. And he resolved to, like, if he ever got out of there, he would never yell at anyone again. Oh, wow. (laughs) So it looks like he did that. So, uh, let's see. And uh, something of an odd note here. Uh, You know, Bob Ross, you know, that was like back in the 80s. In fact, some of the episodes may have been uh, shot and filmed, or at least recorded, on Betamax. Which, you know, long ago, when there was VHS, like, there was a little format war going going on, and Betamax lost. But apparently it stuck around in, like, professional applications. And even though, like, uh, how should I say, manufacturing of, like, recorders and players stopped, like, 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, as of next March, Sony will stop making Betamax tapes. So I believe we were just watching a few commercials of that. Yes, uh, we found that they're very 
feeling very similar to the modern day DVR commercials. Yeah, different style, but it it you know lots of you know grainy wood paneling, <laughs> um, like not just like the wood itself being you know grain, but also you know grainy because it's being recorded on a tape. It, the target audience too is interesting. It seems to be targeting older people, whereas today's modern things would typically target like middle-aged people. Probably, I'd say. Uh, I think I think that was actually targeting like working-age people, older working-age people, maybe. So because of this, you know, then like ten years ago when there was HD DVD and Blu-ray, people were always saying that Blu-ray was going to fail because you know Sony made Betamax and that failed. Well, Sony also made three and a half inch floppy disks and uh, compact disks, like they came up with those standards. Uh, and it's not like anybody used those during the nineties. No. Yeah, like who would? What kind of freak would have used like those little floppies and like you know whoever would shoot a laser at a disk to make music out of it? I mean, that's just crazy. Yeah. So on the random other interesting trivia question. Do we know who uh, in the format war made the VHS tape? Um, I want to say it was like JVC or Panasonic or something. Okay, I'm trying to Google it, but I'm having trouble with spelling. I'm known for bad spelling. Who made the VHS tape? Yeah, JVC. JVC, good job, Andrew. So, uh, and then I later looked it up, and Sony, it seemed like, Half of their job, there must have had, like, had a department that made nothing but media formats. And, you know, let me go ahead and look it up on Wikipedia here. Like, Sony made, like, a lot of, like, media formats. In fact, there's a list of media formats here. Like, there's, like, all sorts of, like, memory sticks and stuff. Um, and, like, lots of other things that, like, I didn't really, uh, I don't, I'm not really familiar with. But, yeah... It, it's okay for some of them to fail, you know, if they made this many. So, uh, at any rate, goodbye, Betamax. So, uh, last week you, uh, mentioned something about, like, uh, I forget exactly what percentage of, like, other connections, but, like, most VPNs, uh, are breakable, they're kind of weak, and like maybe like a quarter of SSH uh, connections are also kind of weak, but apparently that's not the case. So you know this was a scare that you know happened like two weeks or so ago. That uh, apparently uh, was it this common uh, one thousand twenty four bit prime was like kind of common across a lot of uh, you know installations, but. Uh, Apparently, it's not quite the case. So it seemed that I was reading the article, it seemed like it was talking about they excluded a certain sample of data that skewed their numbers. I was trying to understand that part. Uh, like, certain hosts, they threw out the, their data. Yeah. So, and this this was, uh, like, a while ago, so I sort of forgot some of this stuff here. But, uh, you know, there's definitely disputes going on. So, you know, make sure that your primes are large and they're quite random. Yeah, I think regardless, either way, I think that's the general message that uh, both articles pointed to, though, is you still actually need to have, like you said, bigger primes, and that's going to help you out. And, uh, you know, 
also like a lot of, uh, I'm not sure if this this was related, but like a lot of systems, like when they boot, they don't really have a whole lot of entropy in them. So like they tend to create like the same primes, like especially in like smaller embedded systems. So, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I've, I've heard about that for the smaller embedded systems in the context of like uh, encryption for IoT stuff. Uh, we're saying that the encryption, they they tend to go lower bits and stuff. And like you said, it's more predictable. Yeah. And, you know, in that case, I would not be surprised that a lot of, uh, you know, primes and stuff would be well known. So uh, last week we... Uh, found out that both of us use KeyPass for our password managers. And it seems that, uh, you know, it's not exactly as secure as one would think, how should I say? Uh, because apparently you can inject a DLL into the running process and, like, completely read out your password database. So the, the catch is, though, to actually carry out a successful attack on KeyPass someone would actually have to drop these DLLs in the directory of your program, have you open it up, log in, and then it would spit out the uh, common delimited files of your entire database, which uh, works only if they have access slash hack into your machine first, which at that point in time, they can install a keylogger and possibly get your clipboard contents anyways. Yes. So, you know, this is a rather elaborate thing, and... Let's see. I think that they only tested this on Windows 8 and 10, I think. It's still a very interesting concept that you can actually uh, inject the DLL into a program that's running. Uh, it, I, they use some sort of a bootstrap DLL I know we was talking about, and apparently the keypass looks for that when it starts up, and that seems to be the way they, they're getting theirs into the process. It's very interesting, and, it, and it's true. Once you can get inside the process, I was thinking that through, you would you'd have access to objects and things, and they use the Microsoft uh, debugger dump whatever memory tool, and uh, apparently just dumped everything. And uh, you know, in theory, you know, such an attack would work against like pretty much all client side uh, password managers. It's true if you could pull off the injection. So that's really where you need to. Uh, security-wise stop it is make sure you can't inject the DLL. And that's where I'm not really familiar with exactly if it's something they they misdid or it's just that DLLs and executables in general have or are susceptible to this kind of attack. So, like, I'm not sure if, uh, you know, what kind of measures the next uh, edition of KeyPass will have to mitigate, you know, these attacks in the future. It still seems to be a fairly important thing to uh, do because it's not just dumping the password you're copy and pasting, it is dumping everything. So it would be kind of makes sense to do something about it anyways. So, you know, I'm not sure if, you know, it's anything much that, uh, like, the, the program can do or if it's, like, something that's, you know, how should I say, endemic to the .NET framework or the .NET runtime. I'm just like randomly thinking here. At work once for one of our features, we'd had to, after any uh, a variable that had like private information in it or something, we had to clear it out or it had to be encrypted or something internally in the program. But this is working with live, it's working with it. But the problem is you're getting a dump of the entire database. Perhaps there's some way they could change the encryption so it doesn't decrypt 
all the passwords at once, but rather only decrypts the passwords it needs when it needs them. So then at least you may expose what you use, but at the very least you can limit the damage to what you used, maybe. I don't know. You just have to store password in memory, though, while you're doing that operation. That gets to be the tricky part. But maybe if you have a two-layer password, so you have your first layer is the user's passwords, that gets you into the database, so to speak. Then there's some other password you can use to decrypt components within that. Then suddenly, even if they get the internal password, that doesn't matter because you need the external password to get into the initial stored data. Maybe. But then again, this is a password to unlock password to unlock passwords. <laughs> this is such a good idea. So, I won't ever forget any of my passwords. <laughs> it's it's passwords all the way down, man. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, let's see. Speaking of like .NET stuff uh, and Microsoft stuff, um, apparently Microsoft and Red Hat recently joined up so now uh, Microsoft is now offering, was it Red Hat Enterprise Enterprise Linux images on uh, Windows Azure, you know, like their cloud computing platform. So, you know, as we said earlier, you know, Microsoft is a very different kind of company now. So, you know. Yeah, yeah but, buddying up with uh, Linux is kind of typically, not typically, just like totally opposite of Microsoft. But on the flip side, that's where I was talking fringe. It kind of fits with the new Microsoft because the new Microsoft released their source code for the .NET framework into uh, GitHub and made it open source. And they actually used Git, which is kind of amazing since they have their own version control that doesn't work very good. Well, and then they also had like their own uh, code sharing site. Yes, this this too. But uh, getting back to the open source aspect of uh, the .NET framework, that means that it makes it a lot more possible to develop code for Linux. And uh, so maybe they're setting their sites instead of being the the primary operating system, they're saying, hey, maybe sometimes other ones are better, but you know what? We can maybe provide the best IDE and uh, give a really good development environment and have good, good support for that and a nice library. So maybe they're hoping from that perspective to get into the market. Um, there's that. There's also, you know, like particular applications that only run on Linux that can be very useful, uh, like caching uh, systems. You know, like I'm not sure, like Redis, Redis, uh, Varnish, and like other kinds of uh, like very fast, you know, front end caches. I believe uh, are Linux only, or at least like well supported on Linux. And like, there's also like just different you know, parts of your parts of a application architecture that, you know, would definitely, you know, be at home on Linux than on Windows. It is true. Some things just plain are better so, for Linux. So, you know, Microsoft, you know, decided that they're going to be a services company instead of like an operating system and things on top of it. Uh, so like if your company like wants to look at, you know, you know, other Microsoft offerings, but then you realize, oh, I have some Linux systems lying around uh, that are maybe running Red Hat or even Ubuntu. I think Ubuntu's been on uh, Azure for years now. That's, you know, you can just, you know, move it all into the cloud and not really have to change anything. Which makes sense. So, like you said, from the service perspective, 
the when you said that that made me think of Windows 10 and uh, that whole thing. So yeah. So uh, I haven't really heard about this, but apparently it's relatively recent. Facebook M. Apparently it's like some sort of uh, artificial intelligence that lives inside Facebook. There's been you know like a proposal you know since like we have a Turing test. The idea is that you cannot uh, tell if the person on the other end of a conversation is a computer or not. Um, then there's an anti-Turing test that's been proposed that, uh, you know, how should I say, the other uh, party on the other end of the line, you can pretty much, how should I say, you can distinguish that it is an AI. So this is... Uh... So... So, like, there's, like, some sort of test that this guy noticed here in that, you know, apparently it doesn't provide answers immediately like a machine would, but it says that it's an AI, but it helps, you know, humans help shape, you know, the answers that it gives. Oh, so I have an idea. So what if it's an AI, but with just a set number of answers, and it can somehow analyze the sentence structure of your question and figure out your structure? question categorize it as a certain thing that is being asked for and then it goes looks up in the database and says do i know how to answer this thing if the answer is yes it answers it if the answer is no it calls tech support and says write me an answer really fast please <laughs> so um then apparently facebook m has a feature where they can where facebook m can call somewhere and um, this guy apparently had it call himself, and the uh, apparently the caller ID is still on the call there, which he did a reverse lookup on, and sure enough, it goes back to Facebook. So actually, one of the things uh, I was just looking at a conversation, uh, it talks about uh, the assistant manager starts up, says he can help you with things, the guy's like, where should I go to dinner tomorrow? The assistant's like, I'll be happy to help you find something to eat. What city are you looking in? What's some of your favorite food types? He's like, I work in Polo Alto. And then he's like, wait, are you a real pers- person or an AI? <laughs> he comes back and says, I use artificial intelligence, but people help train me. And then he goes on with the restaurant stuff. So apparently, maybe what I said might actually not be too far-fetched. Yeah. So, and then there's the, you know, obviously Siri and Google Now. Which, like, I'm not sure if, like, the Google Now voice actually has a name. I, I don't know that I've ever heard of a name for it before. It's just, okay, Google. <laughs> okay, maybe it's this name. <laughs> okay. Come here, okay. So, um, yeah. Apparently, just as a side note, this is rubbed off on Chris a little bit that I have a phone that's voice activated. Because, like, his doesn't. Okay, say this, say this again. Your so, phone is... so Chris is, I don't know, he's sort of like latched on and he's he's like really, I wouldn't want to say entranced, but sort of interested in that, you know, I ask my phone for everything now. I see. Or, you know, literally not everything, but like a few things. Have, have you shared the Beam Me Up Scotty one yet? You know, I'm not sure. You probably should do that. Something you're like, okay, Chris... I'm going home now. You pull out your phone. And you say, okay, Google, beat me up, Scotty. And he's just going to get this look on his face and expect you to just dissolve in front of him. And then I'll probably go, whoosh, and yes. then run away. 
<laughs> or no, I'll go, whoosh, and then he will go to the other end of the parking lot. <laughs> so, yeah. All the games that we can play with Chris. Yes. <laughs> so much fun. So, uh, let's see. We've done uh, Backblaze, you know, in their, you know, sort of regular reports on how, like, their drives survive. But uh, they also, whenever they sort of upgrade their hardware or, like, the, uh, maybe not their hardware, like, the actual chassis that they put the drives in, like, whenever they upgrade those, they will uh, post about it. And they've uh, gone to now their fifth generation storage pods. Uh, so uh, these hold, was it like 45 drives? Um, and like apparently they're planning on filling them up with uh, like Seagate 4 terabyte drives. And they uh, like, how should I say, I wouldn't want to say completely redesigned uh, how they did everything, but they like overhauled a lot of stuff. In that, like, apparently just for the drives, they have their fans that, uh, you know, they're not in the front anymore. They're sort of, like, in the middle of the case. So both the uh, input to the fans and the exhaust from the fans, like, there's cooling going on on both sides of the fan. Well, if, if I understood it right, this is something with the electronic uh, magnetic whatever interfer- interference, too. Was that involved or was that the wire mesh? That, that was something when we watched the yeah. video together. It sounded almost like the fans were creating something. They're trying no, to show that's they, that wrong on that. They were just like trying to eliminate all the electronic noise in like a data center. Yes. So they want to like shield against that. Okay. So that's why they you know only designed the holes to be certain, like only to be so such and such wide. I see. So. Uh, one of the surprising things was is that they dramatically uh, upped the processor and RAM from an i3 with 8 gigabytes of RAM to a Xeon uh, quad-core with 32 gigabytes of RAM. And uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. Yeah, networking uh, apparently used to be a 1 gigab- gigabit uh, NIC, uh, but it uh, looks like they've moved to a dual 10 gigabit NICs. So, which, you know, even, how should I say, I think, I believe that they uh, did four gig, four terabyte drives in their last uh, pod, uh, but with a single gigabit Ethernet NIC, which is sort of strange because even if you, you know, do that at full blast, like, even at a gigabit, that takes a while to fill, like, several dozen terabytes worth. That is true. That is a lot of space to fill up. So, but uh, then again, like it just like sort of like streams in like little by little. So I don't think that would really matter that much. One thing I kind of thought was interesting in the video, they were talking about how uh, the all the parts were not things that any company could make for them. So they had like alternative suppliers for all the different parts. So that if a company goes out of business or a company jacks your prices up, they say, okay. And it's not a big deal. They've designed it to be very generic and everything. Uh, or unless there's floods in Thailand, which makes all the hard drive prices go up. That can do it, though, of course. <laughs> I like their uh, 
they had for the screw holes inside the drive. Instead of having screws or something annoying like that, they had like this little plastic drive guide. It was just a piece of plastic that's like a bar that has pegs in it. And they push them in, and then they can slide it down inside the rack. I thought that was kind of a neat idea. Yeah. Um, so they also wanted to make the uh, case thinner. So like they used like slightly thinner steel and like decrease the uh, clearances and overhead uh, with the drives because like instead of like laying them flat in the server rack, they apparently stand them up like, you know, as in like you would just like drop the drive like vertically in. So, so I wonder if that what impact it has on life of the drive lying straight up and down opposed to being had the pressure of being flat and platter. You know how the, the the thing a few years back, well, more than a few now, is like 10 years back, this whole thing with the DVD rot and how you were supposed to keep DVDs laying sideways? <laughs> no, I didn't. There was, there, was, there, there was supposedly the goal in the hub of a DVD. Over time, it like bends if a DVD is laying horizontal. So you're supposed to always keep a DVD in a vertical position, <laughs> supposedly. Anyways. Yeah, that kind of sounds fishy. So, um, you know, the thing about, you know, putting them vertically is that you know, like the airflow will flow around them. Ah, this is true. So like if you put them perpendicular to the front, then that means like the airflow will sort of go like uh, <clears throat> along the sort of like like the three and a half inch or so mm-hmm. of the drive. So um, that's true. So like I'm not exactly sure like what sort of airflow difference that would make if they were like lying flat but so i i if you go back up in the article then yes there's, there's a chart the cost of the different ones uh i was just comparing the first one cost what seven thousand eight hundred and sixty seven then yeah. they had a few that was higher one was up at nine thousand yeah eight thousand four point five so this version took the cost down some but they increased uh the uh processing the power. processing the ram that's uh, impressive too. Like I, I, do, I don't know. In the video, they said something about like in decreasing costs elsewhere in the case. I was trying to figure that one out because they put a better processor in that probably cost a fair amount more, and, and then somehow they took the price off. And then you know the drives aren't as expensive as they were either. Okay, so. that's true. That's true. The drives could help out. So it looks like they kept a capacity at four terabytes for like the previous two iterations and you can see like the price just going down throughout so yeah do they literally like sell pods for you to buy if you want to buy them uh someone does like their supplier so uh yes seven thousand nine hundred some the cost for backblaze given that we purchase 300 plus of these a year uh eight thousand uh five hundred or so the cost for you to build one pod by buying the parts and assembling it yourself uh, $10,400, the cost to, uh, for you to purchase one already assembled storage pod from a supplier, then purchase and install the drives yourself. So does not include packaging, shipping, taxes, etc. What is a VAT? Uh, so because I sort of work in e-commerce, I sort of know about this. It's called value-added tax. It's a alternate way of like doing sales tax. So, uh, like, for instance, like, I believe the idea is that only the end user would be charged this tax as opposed to, like, you know, business buying product from another business, uh, like, on their, and, like, 
and then that business sells to like regular customers. I thought that's kind of how sales tax was supposed to work already. Was you didn't charge someone if they were selling it because they're going to be passing the tax on to the final buyer. So, uh, like, it's just like a weird, different tax scheme that's like used in England and I think most of Europe. I think. Ha! I see. So yeah. And like apparently, like the next step in the chain, it's like that's supposed to go up. I think. Thus, the value-added part. So, yeah. Uh, so, you use Python, right? I have, on occasion, in my Raspberry Pi, to uh, write quick and fast things, such as, for example, Smokey, the, uh, the online website. It uses a Python script to send my data up, upstream to my website. So, um... What IDE did you use for that? I used VI. Ah, old school. Yes. So uh, the IDE that comes with Python is like really simple. It's called IDLE. It's basically a glorified text editor. So uh, if you've ever used it and like poked around in a little bit, you might want to gouge your eyes out just by, you know, trying to, you know, wonder where in the world, like, why does everything look so weird? It looks like nothing else on my system. It looks like something from, I don't know, 3.1 maybe? Maybe. So, it uh, some of the funkiness comes from the fact that it uses the uh, TK toolkit, um, which I don't think that anything else really uses that. I've, I've seen that around. Most of the time it's on a Linux app that is very obscure and nobody uses so yeah, this uh, uh, this program could use a little bit of work on it. You know, like some of the dialogues, like not a lot of things line up, and like some of the interface controls are really, I don't know, unintuitive, I guess. So, and you know, the fonts, you know, like one of the very first things, like the main window, it compares uh, the Mac, uh, Linux, and Windows versions. And, you know, the Windows and Linux, you know, flavors, you know, you can, it passes, you can use it. The Mac one looks like crap. And for obvious reasons, because the people who worked on Idle, you know, don't use Mac. Not just the aesthetics, but also some of the, uh, the interaction with it. I believe that they used the, uh, like the about dialogue like how it throws like another uh, another window at you if you want to like read the uh, uh, thing was like the license screen or something. So like they were trying to figure out how to improve that. And uh, like one of the uh, weirder, how should I say, windows is the uh, the configuration stuff. You know, it and like one of the you know, the first thing that comes up is the font selection. And this, it's nothing like what I've ever seen before. Like, at least Windows that I know uses like a, you know, like a regular, uh, like system-wide font selection dialog. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, like most Linux environments also have like a standard across the board font selector. Yeah, something like in GIMP, which is, you know, Windows and Linux, you have a selector where you can see what the font looks like and scroll through the list of big stuff. The font selector on GIMP sucks, too. It's better than this font selector. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like, I've I've actually... 
Yeah, yeah I think like NetBeans uses like the system uh, font selector, and you know it's it's nice. It's you know you're this is like an interface that you're expecting. Uh, Idle does not have one of those, so yeah. Um, and they're also you know talking about going through and like you know actual mockups of you know what they want it to be. So, you know, when you use it to introduce Python to someone, they don't want to gouge their eyes out, yes. which is a good thing. The gouging or not gouging? The not gouging okay. eyes out. Just checking. Yeah, you can never be too careful about those things. Ah, so someone had an idea that wouldn't it be neat if there was a map in my town and on the bottom of the map there was a string attached to London. And when I pulled on the string, someplace in London, it would also pull on the string. And someone could see that. And they could walk over to a map in London and pull on the string and have that string be pulled back on my site. So uh, someone made what they call the Mysterious Interactive Magic Rope Box. Uh, so what it is, basically, is it uses two photons, which uh, we introduced the uh, last uh, podcast uh, for the RC Rover project uh, that I was using there. It's just a little microchip with it has Wi-Fi on it. Uh, so anyways, they uh, hooked it up to a motor slider thing and some electronic parts and uh, has some really simplistic code that basically watches to see when you pull on the string, uh, three quarters of the way through, it publishes a string pull event. And so you have another photon sitting there listening to events for the string pulled. And when it sees that event, it pulls on its string, putting it back to the original reset spot. And so both of them were watching for the event and both of them were sending the event. And so that means whoever is on that specific event watching for it uh, all pull on the string with each other. So it was kind of a neat, interesting idea. I was going to steal actually the wiring diagram for protecting your photon from frying to death. Uh, <laughs> yes, for frying to death. Turns out, if you hook a motor directly up to ele- an electronic chip or something, and then just like have it turn on, it will like cause sparks and things to happen, and like overload the internal electronics of that chip. So you need a some switching mechanism to not directly drive a motor, I guess. So this actually has a uh, diagram where it uses a transistor and then it puts a diode across the motor. That way, as, when you turn the motor off, it's going to keep moving just for a fraction of a second, making power, which you don't want. So the diode actually eats that power and protects the photon from that. But anyways, so stealing that diagram for the RSC rover Wi-Fi photon thingy. Hmm. So, yeah... Like, all the uh, examples in the demonstration here, like, actually have the the rail out, like, bare, as opposed to, like, being in some sort of a box. So, and, you know, I wonder if, you know, like, if it could register, like, oh, it, it was only pulled, like, 25% of the way down. See, to me, I think it could be. I think they just, the code example is super simplistic. We're looking at it. Exactly. It fits on the screen. So you're talking 40 lines, maybe, something like that. Yeah. Maybe 50 or 60, but not many lines of code. 
So you probably could do what you were saying, Andrew, they have like a, it matches your pull exactly thing even. So it's like you pull it out a little bit, it just goes really slow, and then you jerk it and it jerks it too. <laughs> I bet you could do that. But yeah. it's just, the concept is really neat. It's tying it through the internet together. So even in his example, they're sitting at the desk together, but like the original vision for this of about country to country, like that works just as well, just as fast as on your desk. So it's just kind of really neat. Uh, it purports at the end of the article that this could be a great way to keep in touch with distant relatives. <laughs> Currently, you would pull the string and they would pull the string indicating that they have not yet died. Or like attach a bell to it or something. There we go. We could have it. I, this is this this is its practical use. Okay. Bell. Outside you have a string. The cat will pull on the string. <laughs> will ring the bell. You will pull back on the string to indicate to the cat that you are not ready to let it in. <laughs> in which case, the cat would be intrigued by the movement and bat the you know string and bell around. Pull the bell again. <laughs> See, it's a cat toy. You don't have to touch your cat anymore. It germs on you. You can sit in the, behind a glass case with a cat inside and pull in the string and play with your cat. <laughs> this is such a good idea. Cats I, as a service. Cats as a service. <laughs> Internet of Things for Cats. <laughs> I think I'm going to quit my job and make Internet of Things for Cats. Uh, the Internet of Cats? The Internet of Cats. Wait, we already have that. We do? Lol Cats. Lol Cats. Hmm, <laughs> true. Ah... Uh. Anyways, that that would be a good uh, good idea there. So, anyway, you have a a toy to appreciate. Oh, I do have a toy to appreciate. So, uh, I got the other day a black diamond headlamp, and it kind of has a few different modes. It has one mode; it's uh, two red LEDs on it, which uh, <clears throat> they're supposed to be good for nighttime. Yeah. You don't blow your eyes out. Exactly. Supposedly animals cannot see that. I don't buy that. I have discovered, though, that the cats of eyes shine really, really nice with the red light. So I'm thinking raccoon eyes might shine really, really nice, <laughs> too, which could be handy if you're trying to shoot them. <laughs> and uh, has a center spotlight mode where you can uh, see things at quite a distance I'd say like 75 yards or so, you can kind of make out shapes of trees and such and shine it. And so it, it's pretty bright. has like a dimming thing. You can dim that light, actually, hmm. and uh, make it pretty pretty low light if you wanted that. It also has a mode where it goes like a two-spotlight mode for uh, two side LEDs, which if you're wearing it on your head, and basically the your side-to-side vision, what you can see with your eyes is basically what the two-LED light mode is. So I think the idea with this is if you're walking on a maybe, trail... Maybe talk towards the microphone? Yes, I'll <laughs> talk towards the microphone. So I think the idea is if you're on a trail or something, uh, then maybe you can see like the whole trail at the same time. and uh, Or if you're in a campsite or something working, it's a good all-around see what's happening. Uh, so anyways, I thought it was just kind of neat. And uh, what really sold me on it was it runs on AAA batteries, three of them. But it comes with like rechargeable batteries in it, and you can recharge it off of a USB plug. Ooh. But you always can just buy AAA batteries and put them in if uh, you want to, and it's smart, and it will charge alkaline batteries too. So anyways, it was kind of neat, and uh, so I'll be checking my traps with it probably in the dark quite a bit, because that ends up happening sometimes. 
So, yeah, and you mentioning that, I also got my uh, Badger uh, solar panel and power bank. Um, Sam, maybe more than two weeks ago, maybe. But, uh, yeah, it's, you know, pretty much, even on its lowest, pretty much, you know, can be blinding, I guess. It, it is a lot of light there. So that's a low setting right there? Yeah. So what is Whoa, that medium. is... That is really nice. That's a then, lot of light. And high. So what's the, the runtime on the high? Do you know? Have you tested it? Um, I believe it's like maybe four hours or so on okay. high. That, see, that's a lot of light to so, run, run on high. Yeah. And, uh, you know, since it's like sort of like a bar, like the shadows are like kind of interesting. Like if you... That right there is really blurry and it's like spinning. Yes. So like if you like sort of like twirl it around... The shadows, like, sort of, like, move. That, that's that's kind of fun. So, and it also can blink. There you go. <laughs> so, like, I guess this might be useful, like, on a bike or something. So, uh, this is a waterproof LED lamp power bank thing. So, like, you can charge your stuff off of it. So, apparently, you can go swimming with it. I bet, actually, if it could actually I'm... take any depth, that actually can make a fun light. So, like, I'm not sure, like, if you can, like, actually be immersed in water, but, like, if you're, like, camping or something. It's not a big deal for it to get wet, which is right. nice. Yeah. Which, that, that, to me, probably is your most practical use for it. It's a camping light, and you can charge your phone off of it, too, if you don't use all the power up the so, night before. So, yeah, like, as if I would ever go camping. So, uh, and then I guess the Badger sells their... Solar panels. So if you had a solar panel, you're camping and you can yeah. charge it during the day. And uh, which I actually, which I actually have mine out in the car. So since I'm on the north side of my vault, you know, like I don't actually get sunshine in. Okay. So like it kind of sucks, but you know, then again, I don't really like the sunlight anyway. <laughs> but then when I go to work, I'm also on the north side, so like I don't even get any sun there. So, like, only only the car gets sun. So, uh, my manager at work, when I first started working remotely, he made a point to tell me that he used to work remotely at some other place, and he said that he worked down in his basement. And apparently he did that for a few years, and until one day his doctor told him that he hasn't had enough sunlight, and he's, like, very deficient in whatever vitamin it is. That like, vitamin D, I think? I have no idea. I was almost gonna say K, but I, like you said, I, like I said, I, I have I'm, no idea. I think vitamin K is produced in the intestines. Uh, C uh, keeps scurvy away. There's like of like a billion B vitamins. I guess that's why they called it vitamin B because there's like a billion of them. Hey, that makes sense. And then like vitamin A, I think is in carrots, or at least. Like, ends up as okay. vitamin A. So, yeah, and then D, I think, is the sunlight. Okay, so anyways, he must have been deficient in vitamin D. And uh, so, yeah, that's what he told me was uh, basically <laughs> don't need to come deficient in vitamin D. Which, actually, I think I should be good for because I work out in a trailer out and get some sunlight. And I actually make it outside more now that I uh, work remotely versus back when I used to work in the office. I'd go home and play computer games <laughs> in my apartment. Uh, whereas now I go chopping and hunting and kill things and stuff like that. So that gives lots of vitamins too. So uh, unfortunately we don't have any podcast feedback this time. And I did look in the spam folder 
So, and I didn't find anything. So if you sent anything, can you like tell me about it? Uh, so yeah, interesting that you, uh, say come over and play games because, uh, today was a big day, uh, Fallout 4 and StarCraft 2, uh, Legacy of the Void. Uh, so, uh, I'm currently in the midst of my StarCraft marathon, so I wanted, I want, I wanted to play, like, all the way from, like, the very first StarCraft, like, the very first original one through brood war and you know like go into legacy of the void you know as it came out but i'm a little behind on that i'm still stuck in wings of liberty somewhere uh so i hope to maybe finish that and get caught up maybe by the weekend so, so you're thinking of following through on the plan and not cheating and jumping ahead uh yeah so but i am playing on easy mode Okay, <laughs> get through fast. Right, so I think you played the other two before then. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, so the uh, uh, I guess when I get to actually the new stuff, I might crank it up a little bit. So and then uh, I'll be wandering the wasteland. You know, going outside and wondering about the wasteland, going out of my vault. So uh, yeah, and uh, maybe by the time I uh, get finished with that, uh, Star Citizen will uh, have dropped their 2.0 patch. Which uh, will hopefully dramatically expand the things you can do in there. Sounds like you've got a, a good line of games all planned up to play. Yep. Uh, anything you plan? Well, uh, as far as games, I've been playing World of Tanks. How about that? Nice. Uh, not too many battles lately because I've been doing other things. Killed a squirrel on Saturday. <laughs> I'm going to try tanning a skin. What, what game was that? Uh, that was the game of life. Really? Yes. <laughs> you mean like the board game? Uh, like the life game. <laughs> Turns out the squirrel lost. <laughs> didn't know squirrels could play games, but... He couldn't, didn't know either. <laughs> so, yeah, in two weeks there will be uh, this one holiday called Thanksgiving. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we may or may not have a show in two weeks. So, and we'll keep you posted on that. And, oh, how could I forget this is, like, the fourth year anniversary of the Nexus.TV podcasting network. Wow. Yeah. Four years is a long time. Yeah, so, yeah, early November, I'm not sure exactly what date, which I'm sure I could pull it up really fast here, but it's, like, definitely sometime, uh, you know, towards the beginning of November. So is this where we pause for a minute and play some dramatic music in the post-editing? You were expecting a mashup of random quotes from past podcasts? Yeah, that's not gonna happen. So listen to ATN146 instead. It's their first podcast of the year, and at this rate, it's going to be the only one. So go listen to that rarity. And StarCraft II Legacy the Void ending is quite satisfying. Much better than Mass Effect 3. Now returning you to your regularly scheduled podcast, already in progress. Maybe. Uh, sorry if you were just blasted out with that. So, uh, yeah, at the Nexus episode 1, November 13th, 2011. So, yeah, this uh, is currently recorded on November 10th, so I guess that's close enough. It seems pretty close enough, unless there's a competing show that might come out in a couple of days. So, um, I know that one has already been recorded. Uh, if you haven't listened to it, go check that out. I believe it's going to be about uh, Android 6 Marshmallow.
They come up with the best names for hamburger, don't they? Well, it's pretty obvious by this point they're going by desserts and alphabetically. Or at least, or at least, sweet things. Sweet things. Yeah, I remember Kit Kat. The what was? There's something else that came to my mind before marshmallow. Uh, lollipop. Lollipop. That's what I was looking for. Yes, please do Google. Let's read them in honor of uh, Android and their awesome names. Android version history. Yes. Okay, so version API API. Okay, Android 1.5 cupcake. Cupcake. So that's where they actually started it. Uh, then Donut, Eclair, <laughs> um, let's see, Froyo, uh, Gingerbread, Honeycomb, which was like the tablet-only thing, I think, huh. um, Ice Cream Sandwich, uh, let's see, Jelly Bean, there's a few Jelly Beans, and then Kit Kat, which I believe was formerly Key Lime Pie. And uh, lollipop, and uh, now marshmallow. Very neat. So, what would be the sweet thing for N? N. Yeah. N. Uh, let's see here. Nuts, nuts, uh, nectarines. Nestle chocolate. Of course, that would probably be a copyright. Yeah. Uh, Nutella. Uh, nerds. Nuggets. That that would nuggets. also be. Oh yeah, that's true. Uh, let's try the other list. Uh, that is not at all helpful. Thank you, Google. <laughs> oh, come on. Thank you, Scripps, for making my life hard. Ooh, this is a nice list, though. Yeah. Norwell Wheat <laughs> Meat. Nashville Barbecue, yeah. No. Android Nashville Barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> Neapolitan Ice Cream. Yeah, that, that might actually be good. Yeah, see? Okay. Neeps, apparently a Scottish word, word for potatoes. Uh... What is a Newcastle? I thought that was a place that you go to. <clears throat> uh, no, that's White Castle. Newcastle is actually a town yeah. up north of us, too. Um, it's also a town on the way to um, my parents' house. Oh. Sort, oh. Of, it's sort of like on the county line just before you get there. Apparently some place was a castle, and they decided it's the Newcastle. Yeah. Yeah. Nougat, Nougat, yes. Nougat. Android 7.0, Nougat. Oh, and what is a Nougat? Uh, it's like the stuff they put in candy bars. Okay, if it's like food, it, I mean, it sounds cool, and it's not like too common and stuff like that. Could be a good name. Uh, nutmeg, not really. Nutella? Nutella. Nuts. Uh, maybe, that Android might be. Android Nuts? No, that's, that's not <laughs> Android <good>. Nuts! <laughs> I feel like that one's not going to go so good. Nutty chocolate cake, noodles, the nutget, the nougat, or however it's pronouncing and that sounds like that might have potential. <clears throat> so yeah, uh, there you go, Google or whoever is on the dev team. Uh, there's some ideas for you. Uh, nougat is a family of confections made with sugar or honey, roasted nuts, whipped egg whites, and sometimes chopped candied fruit. So that's definitely with the dessert theme. Yes, that that does kind of sound like it. So, uh, any parting words? Uh, have a good one. And war, war never changes.